passion for God and compassion for our neighbor, reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church, and now, here's Pastor Kurt Truxas. Last week I told you we are in a very uh, exciting time here at Crosswinds. We are studying what is, without doubt, the most important events in the history of the world. I know some of you thought the election was the most important event of the history, in the history of the world. Newsflash, that's not true. What we are studying this morning is actually far more important. We are looking at the crucifixion, the death, the burial, and ultimately the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And my friends, that changes everything. Last week we were in uh, looking at Jesus' crucifixion. This week, we're going to be looking at Jesus' death. So I'd like to ask you to take out your Bibles, turn to Mark chapter 15. We're going to be studying uh, from verses 33 to 41, but I'm going to actually begin reading, I think, in verse 21 to set the context so we don't take this, these, any of these verses out of sync here. When you have that in your Bible, please stand out of reverence for the Word of God and follow along with your eyes in your copy of God's Word. I'll begin in Mark 15, verse 21, and read through 41. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him, and the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one in his right and one in his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Ah, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross, that we may see and believe. And those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he's calling Elijah. And some ran and filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let's see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. 
There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James the Younger and of Jose and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. That ends the reading of the word of God. You can be seated. Last week, uh, we wrestled with a, a question as we looked at that first section of verses. How could God the Father restrain himself? His son, his beloved son, loved far more than you love your own children. He was seeing his son beaten, his son whipped, his son scourged to have the flesh torn off his back, his son mocked and tortured. How could God the Father restrain himself and not send his wrath on those Jewish leaders who were conniving and scheming against him? Jesus, as they mocked him, as they whipped him, and they beat him, and they nailed his wrist to the cross and pounded nails through his feet, how could Jesus not use his might and power and get off the cross like the Jewish leaders challenged him to do? And finally prove to them actually who he was and unleash all of his power. What restrained God the Father's hand as he watched his own son suffer and die? What restrained Jesus' hand that he did not use his might and power to come off the cross? What was it? Last week we saw it was love. Love for you and love for me. Because there was no other way for you and I to be saved unless God's own son, Jesus, who took on flesh to be one of us, would die in our place for our sin. This morning, if you have come in here and you wondered if you feel you're loved, if anybody cares about you, if you're important to anyone, Hear this. We learned it last week. You are loved mightily, passionately, and deeply by God the Father and God the Son. Jesus died for you because he loves you. Hear that and hear that well. And this morning as we move from the crucifixion to the death of Christ, we'll see more about God's incredible love for us and Jesus' love for us we'll see that he loves not just people who are good and nice and kind, but he came to save people who are incredibly far from God. People who are really struggling with God. He came to save them. As we develop our study this morning, I'm going to develop our study under three headings. First, we're going to look at the death of Jesus then we're going to look at the centurion's faith in Jesus. And then we're going to look, lastly, at the women who stayed faithful to Jesus. So take out your outlines. We'll be right on the top here. It says, Jesus took the wrath for our sin when he died on the cross. That's the first thing we're going to see. It begins in verse 33. When the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. Let's begin just looking at the time issues. It says the sixth hour had come. Well, what does it mean by the sixth hour? 
in the ancient world, they began counting their hours from sunrise, which was traditionally around 6 o'clock in the morning. Uh, sometimes sunrise was earlier. It was 5 o'clock in the morning, just like it is around here where the sun rises at different times during the year. That's understandable. That's expected. Uh, so the, the zero hour was essentially sunrise. Just so you know, people didn't have these things called watches back then. They didn't really worry about seconds. They didn't worry about minutes. They counted the day in hours or in quarters of a day. That's how they referenced things. The sixth hour is six hours after sunrise, which would be at what time? Noon, exactly. High noon, when the sun was at its peak. And that is important to know that what is about to take place takes, when the sun, takes place when the sun is at its highest. Before we get into what happens next, let me pause and give you a little bit of background from the other Gospels. We know that Jesus was crucified, we learned last week, at 9 o'clock in the morning. Between 9 a.m. and noon, which we're talking about now, the other Gospels tell us that Jesus said three different things while he hung on the cross. The first one we find recorded in Luke 23, verse 34. That's where Jesus actually prayed for the very soldiers that were crucifying him. Do you remember what he said? Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. And then, right after that, in Luke 23, 43, the thief in the cross, who had just heard Jesus praying for the forgiveness of the soldiers who were killing him, one of those thieves turned, and instead of mocking Jesus, started trusting Jesus. And what did Jesus say to him? Today, you will be with me in paradise. Now, if you go up to the Gospel of John, John chapter 19, verse 26 through 27, we find something else that Jesus said. Apparently, the, his mother was there, as well as the Apostle John, and he cared about his mother in those moments because he, he said to the Apostle John, he said, Behold your mother. And to his mother, he said, Behold your son. So between nine and noon, we have three things that were spoken by Jesus. Two... We're about Jesus offering forgiveness, forgiveness to the soldiers who were crucifying him, and forgiveness to the thief who had been mocking him next to him. The other one was about care, caring for his mother. Now at this time, it is high noon. The sun is blazing. And what happens? Darkness. Complete and total darkness comes over the land from noon until Three o'clock. What happens? Well, the first thing many people say, well, it's just simple. It was just an eclipse. Really? Passover takes place during a full moon every year. Eclipses can't happen during a full moon. What is this darkness? And how much does it cover? It says it covers literally the whole land. Well, I don't know if that is just the land of Israel or that is the entire earth. Nobody had a f phone at the time. Nobody texted somebody on the other side of the world. Hey, is it dark for you on the other side of the world? We, we don't know that. It doesn't tell us that, but we does say that thick darkness covered the entire land. So what is this darkness? 
What's in this darkness? Is it Satan? Good thinking, Tom. I'll tell you who it is and what it is. It's God. It's God showing up in that thick darkness. Now, maybe what I'm going to tell you is something you have never heard before, so I'll take a little bit of time to prove it. God can show up in darkness just as God can show up in light. Let's begin by this first one that we're all more familiar with. God is spoken of as light when he shows up. Psalm 84, verse 11. For the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. In the scriptures, when we find God talked about as light, it's talking about his righteousness, his, his holiness. Remember the Shekinah glory of God in the temple when God showed up? That's God showing up as light. Remember when Moses went up to the mountain on Mount Sinai? God showed up in light to him. Remember he came down and his face glowed like a big light bulb for a long time afterwards? But while God can show up in light, the Old Testament also gives us examples of God showing up in utter darkness. Genesis 15 gives us examples. Numerous times in Exodus. So let me show you this, where God has spoken of his darkness. For instance, Exodus 20, verse 21. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. Hmm. God's in darkness. And as you start to trace your finger throughout the Old Testament, you find an interesting thing, a theme in there called the Day of the Lord. Some of you may be familiar with this. The Day of the Lord, when it talks about in the Old Testament, is a time where God shows up with his wrath, a time where God shows up in judgment for, for sin. And when you see the Day of the Lord motif talked about in the Old Testament, and when God shows up in those times, guess how he shows up? darkness. The darkness of God is associated with the wrath of God. I'll give you an example. Joel chapter 2 verse 10 talks about this. The earth quakes before them. The heavens tremble. The sun and the moon are darkened and the stars withdraw their shining. Or you can go to Amos. Amos which also talks about the day of the Lord's wrath. And what does it say? And notice how eerily familiar this is. On that day, declares the Lord, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. Does that sound vaguely familiar? Sun going down at noon, darkening the earth in the midst of broad daylight. Yes. Let me summarize this for you. The Old Testament's prophets talk about a time where God visits the earth in judgment, and when God does that, his presence is in darkness. Now here's an interesting thing to, to associate with that. Uh, a long time ago, we studied hell. Remember when we did a four-week study on hell? How does Matthew describe hell, where God's wrath is being carried out? Is it a place of light, or is it a place of darkness? Darkness, exactly. It's called outer darkness and blackness. So, it's the presence of God's wrath 
that shows up that afternoon from noon to 3 o'clock. In three hours, the wrath of God is poured out on his own son as he hangs on the cross. The wrath of God that you and I deserved to endure for all of time is concentrated on God's own Son for three hours of time. You could say Jesus receives an eternity of hells that you and I deserve as he hangs on the cross. Some of you will remember as we were studying the passage on the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus was so stressed about what he was going to endure and he sweat drops of blood what was it that stressed Jesus out so much? Remember, it was the cup of God's wrath. It was not the scourging that stressed Jesus out. It was not the mocking. It was not the beating. It was not the pounding of thorns into his head. It was not 600 soldiers spitting on him. It was not the crucifixion that was hard. This is what was hard. When in three hours of time, he endured in concentrated form the eternity of hell that you and I deserve for all of time. That is the great pain of the cross. Now some of you may say, well, how can this take place? This doesn't make sense. How could something that would take for us an eternity that would never be exhausted to pay Something that Jesus could pay in only three hours. Here's the way it works. Jesus is a divine being. We're not. Jesus is an eternal being. We're not. His capacity to absorb things and to endure things is far beyond ours because he's God himself. So what he endures in those three hours is the concentrated form of God's wrath that we deserve. What we would be able to absorb would be the diluted form of God's wrath that would take an eternity for it to be exhausted. So, those three hours of darkness are not Satan's presence, they're God's presence bringing his wrath that we deserve on his own son. And it continues... And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama shabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When it says the ninth hour, we know what time that is. We've just counted from sunrise. That is three o'clock in the afternoon. We know that between nine and noon, Jesus said three things. We mentioned those earlier. Here is the first thing Jesus says after having endured all all of the wrath that we deserved for our sin while on the cross. What is Jesus saying? He's saying essentially this at the end. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's mourning. He's sad. His heart is broken because his relationship with God the Father is not there. It is broken. Folks, when Jesus was made sin for us, for the first time in all of eternity, 
God the Father turned his back on his own son because he cannot look upon sin. And Jesus has experienced the incredible pain of God's wrath that we deserved. And what do you think he wants at this point? Comfort. He wants comfort. He wants love. He wants relationship, the one he loves most, his own father. But his father has had his back turned on his own son. So he's calling out for comfort, but he's experiencing loneliness. Now, we know about loneliness. Remember COVID? Remember the lockdown? Can't come out of your house? How does it feel to be lonely? Now multiply that between what Jesus, multiply that thousands of times over, what Jesus was experiencing in this moment. Finally, never before been separated from his father, but his father has now turned his back on him because he's been made sin. Incidentally, I think it's important to notice that what Jesus says when he calls out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's exactly what the scripture tells us he would say. Psalm 22, verse 1, which we studied Psalm 22 a little bit last week. It is a, written a thousand years before Jesus by David, and it gives vivid, detailed, precise descriptions of what Jesus would say and what Jesus would do. And this is what David said a thousand years before. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And that's exactly what Jesus, he said, would say. And that's exactly what he did say. And here's where it's interesting to mention this. Everything was happening exactly the way God the Father had planned, wasn't it? Everything was happening the way it had been prophesied years before, thousand years before. Even the very words that Jesus was saying were the words that God the Father said he would say. So none of this is out of control. None of this is God's plan going off the tracks. Now, I want to point out for you one thing, that I actually have this on your outline. It's out of uh, order, so I apologize for that. The next fill-in-the-blank I have for you is this. The darkness, suffering, isolation, and lack of comfort Jesus experienced on the cross is a preview of hell. Isn't that the truth? We've already seen that God's wrath his, or his presence, I would say, in wrath comes about in utter darkness. Hell is described as a place of utter darkness. But also, now Jesus is experiencing isolation, loneliness, absolutely no comfort whatsoever. That's what hell is like, isn't it? It's not a place to regroup and be with your friends. It's a place of isolation and utter loneliness. It's also, by the way, worth noting, it says here that Jesus had cried out with a loud voice. That's important because when people were getting close to dying on the cross, they couldn't talk on the cross. Because what did the cross do to kill you? Anybody remember? It's suffocation. That's right. Asphyxiation. So you can't talk. After having endured all of that scourging, all of that beating after hanging on the cross for three hours, after having endured in three hours of time 
the wrath of God that would take us an eternity of time to absorb. Is Jesus weak? No. Jesus is still strong. Important for us to note. He's not close to death. Mark 15, 35. And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he's calling Elijah. Why would they say that? Well, Eloi, Eloi is Aramaic, and it sort of sounds like Elijah, Elijah. And those who aren't familiar with everything going on, they're like, oh, he's calling Elijah. Now, why would they think that? Go back in your Old Testament mind. Do you remember Elijah? Did he die? Uh Uh-uh. He was taken up with the chariot to heaven. Let me tell you a little Jewish tradition that was alive and well at that time, but is relatively unknown in our time. They believed that Elijah would occasionally return to earth, since he never died, to help those who were righteous people in their time of need. Sort of like a Marvel comic book action hero, you know? Superman comes back and helps you. And so they believed maybe he's calling Elijah to come and help him. There's also the idea that you can look at Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 through 6, which talks about before the Messiah comes, we would have Elijah come, which we know from our perspective is actually John the Baptist, but they didn't know that. So they think he's calling Elijah for help. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait! Let's see whether Elijah will come to to take him down. What's going on here? Why this sponge? Why, Why this drink? What is going on here? Mark typically doesn't give us too many details. Usually the other gospel writers do, and I'm going to turn us to the gospel of John, where John tells us a little bit more of the details that took place at this moment. John says, After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. And a jar full of sour wine stood there. They put it on a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. So the reason they offer him the drink of sour wine on the sponge is simply because he asked for it. Behold, I thirst. I'm thirsty. Why did he say he was thirsty? To fulfill the scriptures. Once again, everything is going to take place according to God's plan, foretold thousands of years before, all the way down to every intimate detail. What scripture did he fulfill? We covered this one briefly last week. I'll read it for you again. It's Psalm 69, verse 21, which says, They gave me poison for food, and for my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. What did Jesus just say? Behold, I thirst. And what did they give him? Sour wine to drink. But then I was looking at this this week, and just to be honest, I sort of was a little confused. I'm like, okay, well, I got the second part of the verse, but this poison for food thing, 
I'm clueless. I don't remember that anywhere. And this is when you actually are happy that you spent all that time learning Greek and Hebrew in seminary. So I got my lexicon out, and I started looking at poison and trying to do the root of it, and it was a very interesting Hebrew word. It's only translated as poison once. Nine other times, it's translated as gall or bitterness. Does anybody remember what they offered Jesus before he went to the cross last week? Wine mixed with what? Myrrh or gall is what Matthew says. The exact same thing. So, the first part of this verse, well, by the way, last week, for those of you who weren't here, we talked about gall or myrrh being extremely bitter. And the reason they put it in the wine was when he was thirsty, give him something to drink, and he would be nauseous and sick on the cross. That's why they gave it to him. Here we find evidence of that. Because they gave me poison, which is gall or, or myrrh, myrrh or bitterness for food. And for my first, they gave me sour wine to drink. So we see the scripture is being fulfilled exactly as it said. Continuing on the Gospel of Mark. It says, Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. Now this is the important part here. Loud cry. What did we just talk to about a moment ago? Is that the way crucified victims die? Being able to speak? No. They are slowly suffocated to death. So Jesus, understand at this point, is not being forced to die. He is not even close to death. Let's go to another gospel and get more details. John chapter 10. I, oh, excuse me, by the way, I should mention this. This is important to know he's not being forced to die. John chapter 10 tells us he would never be forced to die. He says, I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from the Father. Nobody can kill Jesus, but he can choose to die. Jesus could also choose to come back to life again. He's received those things from the Father. Now, the Gospel of John, let's go back into it. It gives us some more important details. It says, When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. I'll mention the fact that when he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Remember, Nobody took Jesus' life from him. He chose to die. Because no one has power over Jesus. No one could take the life of Jesus. He had to choose to give it up. And also incredibly helpful here is why he chose to die at this point. He said, it is finished. In the Greek, it's one word, not a sentence. It's the Greek word tetelestai. Typically, that meant paid in full. 
if you had a business dealing and you had an IOU, when you finished paying it, they stamped that on the front of it, Tetelestai, now paid in full. Jesus chose to die at that moment because it was finished. He had now paid in full for all of our sins. He had suffered all of the wrath for sin that you and I deserve to receive. He had drained every last drop of God's wrath against us away. Now my job is done. It is paid in full. Now I choose to die. In that moment, when he had drained away all God's wrath, do you realize he had made the Old Testament sacrificial system from that moment forward completely unnecessary and completely obsolete? Because now the way that we approach God is not through a priest, it's through Jesus. It's not through offerings of animals. It's through Jesus who paid for all of our sin once and for all in one fell swoop by the death of himself where he, like a sponge, sucked away all of God's wrath and absorbed it. And that's why he could say to the feet, the thief who turned and trusted in him right next to him. Today, because you place your faith in me, you will be with me in paradise. Folks, nothing has changed. I don't know what your relationship is with Jesus this morning, but I can tell you that if you like that thief that hung on the cross next to Jesus, simply place your faith and your trust in Jesus to save you from your sin. Your sins are instantly and totally paid in full. And you, you have complete and full access to the God who loves you so much that he sent his own son to die for you. My friends, this is incredibly, incredibly good news. What was true on that first day is still true today. This is why here at Crosswinds, we're all about reaching people with the good news of Jesus. It's why we wear these wristbands. It's why we're praying for opportunities in our friends and our neighborhoods to tell them the good news about what Jesus has done for them. Let me return to the gospel here. Gospel of Mark. We find that as soon as Jesus died, a number of supernatural occurrences took place. First is this, the curtain separating the Holy of Holies was torn in half by God. Mark tells us this. It says, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. So you're aware of the, the, the temple in Jerusalem actually had about a dozen curtains in it. Uh, the one that this is being talked about here is the one that separates the Holy of Holies where God's presence was said to dwell. Uh, from the room next to it where the priests could go. Now, the priests could go into the Holy of Holies only about once a year, and that very briefly. And they had to bring blood as a sacrifice for their sin and for the sin of the people. Just run in and run out. But God took this curtain that traditionally was about the width of your hand, and with his own hand, from top to bottom, the Scripture tells us, when his son died, tore that in half. 
Because what had happened was now that Jesus had paid for sin, the way was now open for you and I to go directly into God and to speak with him and to be with him. Incredibly good news. Other things happened. There was a massive earthquake that split rocks. If you go to the Gospel of Matthew, we find that, behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, it says, and the earth shook and the rocks split. An earthquake that is strong enough to split rocks is a big earthquake. Jesus dies and the very earth shakes. I picture buildings probably coming down. Not just in that one little area, but in a big area. By the way, uh, Psalm chapter 18 verse 7 tells us this. The earth reeled and rocked. The foundations also of the mountains trembled and quaked because he was angry. You think it hurt God the Father to watch his son die on the cross? Do you think God was in pain as he saw his son give up his life? Yeah, exactly. Another thing happened. Many dead saints came back to life. The tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of their tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. Remember Lazarus? <laughs> Just about a week earlier, you know, he, he comes out of the grave, and everyone's like, hey, look, he, Jesus can bring him back to life. Like, now we have all kinds of people coming back to life. Their tombs, which are in rock, they're having the doors blown open, rocked open, and they're all going downtown having like pita sandwiches and goat milk lattes. And people are freaking out. Like, what is going on here? This is what happens when Jesus dies. I buried that guy, and now he's back. Now, let me just ask before we go any further. Where was God in all this? Right there. He was in the darkness, wasn't he? That poured the wrath out on his own son. He was the one that tore the veil in half. He was the one that shook the earth. He was the one that brought people back to life. God was involved in all of this. And here, my friends, is where it gets totally amazing. The, centur the confession of the centurion shows us Jesus was already saving lives while he died. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. Now, we don't know too much about this guy. We know he was a centurion. That means he was a commander of a hundred Roman soldiers. He's not a dummy. I mean, when you're a leader like this, you're obviously a smart guy. Church tradition tells us his name is actually Longinus. I don't know if that is true or not. But we do know this. As the centurion, he was in charge of Jesus's execution. Perhaps he had been with Jesus all the way from the beginning. He had seen Jesus when he's part of the arrest group, when they brought him before the Sanhedrin, and he claimed to be the very Son of God. Perhaps he saw Jesus being slapped, 
being punched in the face with the bag over his head. He was there as the centurion in charge of all this when they scourged Jesus. And he noticed that Jesus did not open his mouth, as it says in Isaiah. No hatred, no cussing, no retaliation. He was in charge of the men who pounded the nails into Jesus' wrists, into Jesus' feet, and he was silent. And the only thing that Jesus turned and said to him was this. You remember this? Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. And he heard the thieves that were on the cross, crosses next to Jesus, mocking him. And he heard the one thief who turned and stopped mocking him and trusted him. And Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise. He's not a dummy. He put this all together and said, truly, this man was the very son of God. Now let me think about this with you for a moment. Jesus came and the mission of his life was to save us. Save us from our sin. And I told you earlier, he came to save people who were far from God because of their sin. Before he dies and when he dies, he's saving people who are far from God because of their sin. The first person he saved was a Jewish murderer and a thief who was the cross on the cross next to him, turned and trusted in Jesus and was saved by Jesus. The second person he saved now is the Gentile Roman executioner who is in charge of taking his own life. He said, you know, this guy's right. He is exactly what he said to the Sanhedrin at the beginning. The very Son of God. And he trusts in him. And he's forgiven by him. Even though he, was, he killed Jesus. By the way, the news gets even better. Many of you didn't realize this. Turn to the Gospel of Matthew and look what Matthew says. When the centurion and those who were with him keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, truly this was the Son of God. It wasn't just the centurion in charge of his execution that recognized Jesus as the very Son of God. It was the other soldiers with him as well who were in charge of taking Jesus' own life. Jesus came to save people who were far from God a Jewish thief and murderer who hung on the cross next to him, a Gentile Roman soldier who was in charge of executing him, and not just him, but the others who pounded the very nails into his hands and to his feet, recognized him as the very Son of God, and were saved. Nothing has changed, my friends, God is still in the business of saving people who are far from him. I don't care how far from him you are today. If he can save the man who executed him, and he can save the thief who hung on the cross next to him, by simply turning and trusting and recognizing him as the Son of God, he can save you as well. Incredibly good news. 
Let me quickly cover this uh, last section. The women that followed Jesus remained faithful to Jesus. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and the younger and of Josie, and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him, and there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. I just think it's interesting that Mark throws this in, by the way. Where are the guys? We know that the Apostle John was there. Where are the rest of them? They're running away. Who are the real, so much for male courage, right? Who are the courageous ones that are still by the cross? The women. And they've been following him for a long time, by the way, since Galilee, which means it's over two plus years. Incidentally, a number of them are the um, mothers of the apostles. Let me just jump to the end here. What lessons can I learn? Mark chapter 1, verse 1 tells us that this is the story of Jesus Christ, the very Son of God. So far in this gospel, not a single human being has recognized Jesus as the Son of God. Here, at the very end, we have the first human being to actually recognize who he is. And who is it? It was the soldier in charge of taking his very life. Jesus came to save people far from God. Like a Jewish thief and murderer who turned to him and trusted in him. The Gentile soldier who was in charge of executing him. I don't know how far from God you are this morning, but I would tell you, if you turn to him and trust in him, he will save you today. Let's go ahead and pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this text. We thank you so much that you came to save people who were incredibly far from you. I don't know this morning who's here and what they have done and how far they have run from you and rebelled against you. I know they weren't the ones who killed you. They weren't the ones who hung on the cross next to you. If you can save them, you can save us. Jesus, I, I thank you for your incredible love to stay on that cross, to die for us and save us, not just the good people out there, but the lost people who are far from you. And I ask that you would help us, Heavenly Father, as Christians here at Crosswinds Church, to have the same heart that you have for us, that we may be involved in the lives of people who are far from God so we can tell them the incredible good news that you, Jesus, have come. You've died. You've paid for all their sin. You've come to save them if they would only give their faith and trust in you. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Kurt's sermons can be found online at ChristToOurCulture.com. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.